is a recording made in the chapel of the open book under the covering title of the Pleroma. We are at the present moment dealing with the epistle to the Colossians and the actual section before us is Colossians 1, 23 to 28 and as our custom is we are reading together a portion of scripture and those of you who are listening to this recording if you care to join in will you switch off for a moment or two and read with us Hebrews chapter 5 and 6. While we agree that the epistle of the Hebrews does not teach the truth of the mystery and has an aspect that may be a little different from ours, yet you get a combination in these chapters of an oath sworn by God, something that's immutable and unchangeable, and then the urging to go on unto perfection and to use the anchor. And if anybody says, but supposing I let go, of my, let go of my anchor, well you don't argue about whether you're once saved, you'll be always saved. So if you let go of your anchor, you'll slide and drift. And you'll find in when we come to the epistle to the Colossians, after all the strong consolation we've had with regard to our preparation for glory, to be presented without spot, the next section starts with an if. An if. First of all, shall we turn to Colossians 1 and consider the structure of the passage before us and its corresponding member in chapter 4. The first member occupies verse 23 down to 25 and focuses our attention upon this new ministry which the Apostle is introducing here on the completion of the Word of God. Our version says to fulfill the Word of God, the completion of the Word of God. Then if you look at chapter 4, after he's gone through this epistle, he's still keen about this Word. In verse 3 of chapter 4, with all praying also for us, that God would open unto us, our version says, a door of utterance. Literally, a door for the word. A door for the word. There's a point here, friends. It's one thing for you and for me to be boasting and rejoicing that we have a completed Bible. It's another thing to realize that truth revealed is truth entrusted and it's no good walking about saying you've got a completed Bible unless you're ever seeking a door of utterance that it may be made known. Otherwise, what difference is it between you and everybody else if you hug it to yourself? So we've got those two notes. Now we come back to chapter 1, verse 26. The mystery manifested. Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations and now is made manifest to his saints. And when you come to chapter 4, verse 4, leading on from verse 3, to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds, that I may make it manifest, as I ought to speak. You're not going to miss that, are you? Chapter 1 says, God made the mystery manifest to Paul. He says, oh, I do pray that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Look at the balance. It's one thing for God to manifest the truth to you or to me. It's another thing for us to rise to our glorious responsibility and seek to make it manifest to others. What a balance there is in the word of God, isn't there? And then we come back again to chapter 1 and in 24, and now you'll see I've dodged this about a bit, because if I'd put out the complete structure with all its multiplicity of A, B, C and B, C, A, well, it would be such a tangle uh, that I had to leave it. Now, I'll leave that with you who are looking at the chart and listening to this to have another go at it and put all the details in. I think you'll find it will balance. But here it is in verse 24. Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. 
So there we have afflictions for the body's sake. And we look at chapter 4, verse 3, with all praying also for us, that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds. The bonds, the sufferings, were in relation to his calling. And then we have in verse 25 of chapter 1, whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to complete the word of God. A dispensation of God. And at the other end, we have in chapter 4, verse 11, is giving a list of fellow believers and sums them up. These only are my fellow workers unto the kingdom of God. Chapter 1, a dispensation of God. Chapter 4, the kingdom of God. Let me say here that some folks have made a mistake. Because sometimes we differentiate between what we call kingdom truth and church truth, that is only a human subdivision. Strictly speaking, nothing is outside the kingdom of God. Israel's kingdom, the heavenly Jerusalem, the position far above all, and then creation itself, sun, moon and star, principality and power, nothing can be outside the sovereignty of God, the kingdom of God. But just as we have to do in everyday things and in science, we have to subdivide and keep things in their categories and classes. So it's a useful thing if we understand what we're doing to say now kingdom truth is where we are dealing with the earth and with the people of Israel, promises to David and so on. And uh, at the same time, here we have in chapter 1 that we have been delivered from the authority of darkness and translated into the kingdom of his dear son. We've been translated into the kingdom of his dear son. So the kingdom is still here, although not the same phase of the kingdom that we have in Matthew, the Acts of the Apostles, or the early epistles. Well now, leaving the balance of these two, let's look at the passage itself. Chapter 1, 23 to 28. And again I direct you to the outline on the chart because that will save so much time. I, I hope you realise that this is not a mere matter of prettiness, uh, a little fad on my part. Don't you see that if you can demonstrate either to a believer or to an unbeliever that underneath the surface of Scripture lies this backbone, this anatomy, surely you have to say, well, if that's true, it's got the same mark about it that we have in the creation around us. That the God who made heaven and earth is the God who has spoken in the scriptures and there's a parallel between his works and his word. So now we have one twenty-three. The two words which I've lifted out are the hope of the gospel. If ye continue in the faith grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. And then 27 to 28, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. There's the beginning, there's the end. The hope of the gospel, the hope of glory. The hope of the gospel is the hope that is engendered in your heart and mind by the good news that God has sent you, and then you turn round the other way and you look ahead to the glory which that good news has made you prepared for and fitted you for. So we start and we end on this word hope. So you see, there was a reason for reading that passage in Hebrews 6. Which hope we have, if you belong to that calling, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. If you stop there, you stop too quickly. It doesn't matter whether your anchor is made of the strongest steel that ever could be forged. If you can't find bottom, it's no good. So it just enters into that within the veil. And that within the veil is the finished work of Christ presented at God's right hand. That's an anchorage, friends, isn't it? And so if anybody starts saying, oh, but supposing we let go our anchor, well then tell them you'll drift and don't waste time. It's so obvious. 
We've got no guarantee, friends, that if we belong to the church, which is the body of Christ, and we are assured of being accepted in the beloved, that if we play, play fast and loose with God's word, we've got no assurance we won't suffer for it. He'll keep his word at the end, certainly. But do we want to act like that? That's not the indication of a new creation. That's a little bit of the old man coming up. So we'll leave it. Then we have an emphasis on the word minister. Verses 23 to 26. You will notice the way in which these things now are balancing. The hope of the gospel was preached in all creation. The hope of the glory is demonstrated by because it's preached among you. We'll see there's a balance there presently. Now look down these two little columns. Twice he says he's a minister. At the end of verse 23, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. And at the beginning of verse 25, whereof I am made a minister. Twice he says it, in that short space. And then he speaks about something which is for you. The first thing, his sufferings, verse 24 who now rejoice in my sufferings for you. And then he says, I have received this stewardship or this dispensation of God for you. So whether he suffers or whether he's a, a steward, it wasn't for his own sake. It was for you. And you happen to be Gentiles mentioned uh, by name presently. And then he says, he fuels up that which is lacking of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. And then he says um, that this ministry fills up or completes the word of God. The apostle is on this keynote all the time. Fullness. Even the sufferings that he had to endure were now going to be completed. You remember when he was called in Acts 9, I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. This man, when he was commissioned, was already acquainted and assured that from start to finish, he would have to have fellowship with the sufferings of Christ. But of course this man would repudiate immediately any idea that his sufferings took the place of the sufferings of Christ. He gives you a figure in Philippians where he says, if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice. And that word offered means to pour it out as a drink offering. And he knew more about that than we do. The drink offering was permitted by God so that the offerer could give a little bit of gratitude. That's all. Didn't make any difference to the acceptance. The acceptance was in the blood that was shed and the offering that was made. But he permitted the offerer to pour out that little drink offering. And then you remember in Ephesians chapter 3, while we're on this, we might as well complete this now, I think, because of time. In Ephesians chapter 3, he says, verse 13, Wherefore I desire that ye faint not at my tribulations. Isn't that fine? He might have said, don't think I'm fainting at my tribulations. But he didn't say that. He wasn't fainting. He said, I don't want you to faint. I desire that you faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. So there's a very strong link between the sufferings of this servant of God and those who listen to his ministry. Let him speak once more in Second Timothy. Chapter 2, verse 9. He speaks about this gospel, wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sakes, he is suffering still, that they may also obtain that salvation which is in Christ Jesus with age-abiding glory. There's something there that we want to remember. Then in Philippians, he said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. 
or in chapter 3, he desired to have fellowship with his sufferings, be made conformable unto his death. Right the way through this man's ministry, he followed closely in the footsteps of his Lord. But he said, were you baptized in the name of Paul? Was Paul crucified for you? Of course not. And yet he was permitted to have this fellowship with his Lord. You may say, why? Well, I think we'll wait, friends, and when we're in the glory, we'll ask him. And we shall be told the truth then. I'm only, I should only be guessing. So there we've got the sufferings for you, and the filling up of the afflictions for you. And then, all this is for the church, which is his body. Church, which is his body. And in the balance, it is because of the mystery. Well, the church, which is his body, is the very centre and core of the dispensation of the mystery. So, you see, if you want to appeal to a passage which in a few verses sets out the claim of the Apostle Paul to have received a dispensation for the church which is the body, a mystery that was hid, here it is. Verse 26, even the mystery which have been hid from ages and from generations. So that is the next one, verse 26. There's the minister, there's the mystery. Hidden from the ages, but now made manifest to his saints. And that word now is important. It doesn't say hidden from the ages and generations and at the same time or a long while ago, but no, now. When's the now? When Paul's a prisoner. When Israel have been blinded when the dispensation has come to an end that ran through the Acts of the Apostles when a new one is brought in. Well, that is more or less just the analysis. Now shall we look at one or two of the outstanding features. Just a word or two with regard to the way in which this starts with the word if. That great master of words said, you remember, much virtue in your if. Shakespeare, and the word if stands for quite a number of different uh, meanings. I'm going to select my illustrations from the Epistle to the Colossians itself. If we went out, we could add to them. But just one or two. In chapter 3, 13, we have these words. Forbearing one another, and forgiving one another, if any man have a quarrel. Now that is, in the Greek, I'll spell the word E-A-N. Ian. E-A-N. And that means a possibility. It doesn't say that every believer must necessarily quarrel with every other believer, but if he does, you see, it's a possibility. Now in chapter 2, verse 20, and chapter 3, verse 1, we have the word E-I, not E-A-N, E-I. That's another word translated if. And this is the if of argument. Verse 20, wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ, chapter 3, 1, if ye then be risen with Christ, he's not doubting it. He's only saying, well, if that's the case, you see. This is the if of argument. When John records our Saviour's words, if I go away, I will come again. Well, there's no doubt about it, is there? Well, then we have I, again, E-I, tacked onto G-E. E-I-G-E. Look, I think I'll put these three on the board. E-A-N-E-I- E-I-G-E. Then if you come across them in your lexicon or anything, you'll recognise them, I hope. Uh, now, G-E, G-E by itself means surely, Romans 8.32. Romans 8.32. He that spared not his own son, 
but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? It's not translated. It's incorporated. The, it, it's there. This little tiny word is saying, surely, if he did that, he will do that. You're conscious of it, aren't you? When the two are put together, when he puts together the word if and the word surely, he says, if, surely, uh, taken for granted. It's no good me talking to you, he says, if you're deaf. It's no good me talking to you if you're not here. But taken for granted, you are here, and you can listen to what I say, you see. That's another way we use the word if. And that's the word that comes in Colossians 1. Uh, where we're looking. Verse 23. I give. I'll give you two references in Ephesians for this. And then I think we should have to pass on. Otherwise we should be spending un- uh, too much time. But sometimes it's good to clear these thoughts up. Ephesians 4, 21. 20. But ye have not so learned Christ, if so be that you have heard him. Oh, but it's taken for granted you've heard him. Or again, Ephesians 3, verse 2. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, or oh, if you have heard of the dispensation, if you haven't heard of that, of course I've got to stop and tell you. I'm only saying that because some people have been boggling over this if. They say, oh, now, I thought we were going to be presented holy and unblameable and unreprovable, and it's like now as an if. Well, after he'd given a wonderful teaching in Ephesians 1, he stops and says, now I'm going to pray for you. And the first thing he prayed about was that you may know what is the hope of his calling. And the first thing he says here, of course, of course, all this is so much moonshine to you if you're moved away from the hope of the gospel which you've already heard. Oh, he says, you can't talk to people who are drifting about. This is a priceless thing. And it wouldn't be right for God to ignore Anybody playing fast and loose. So, he says, now, taking it for granted that that hope is fixed in your heart, I'll go on and tell you more. And when you come to the epistle of the Ephesians and start it, it's not merely to the saints. Not merely. It's to the saints and the faithful. Now, every saint isn't faithful. If, if that were so, well, we, we should be find a different church altogether from what we know. We're all saints by reason of the redemption of Christ. And faithfulness is then the God-given grace to be responsive to it. So here he says, taking for granted, of course, that you continue in the faith, having been grounded and settled, not merely telling you to be grounded and settled, you don't start digging. Oh, now he's throwing you back on the past. A bit more grammar, friends. The perfect, passive, participle. Passive, you know, passive is somebody else is doing it, not you. The perfect, it was done in the past and it operates now. Like Pilate's words, what I have written, I have written, no altering it. So it's perfect, it's passive, it's done. But if you start playing about, you'll suffer some consequences, as should be. So he says, having been grounded and settled, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard of which was preached to every creature which is under heaven. How are we going to take that? If we take it absolutely, every creature under heaven. Can't be, because Paul never got to every creature, taking each one. But nobody set set any limits to Paul's ministry. Nobody said to him, you stop there. If anyone could say the words that Wesley once said, the world is my parish, it was the Apostle Paul. No bounds were set now. To the very ends of the earth, the ministry could go. And when he says it again in the structure, it wasn't every creature under heaven, but it was among the Gentiles. But you must look at it always from the point of view that it was a very limited thing when it was among Israel. Go not into the way of the Gentiles, into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Those who were scattered abroad at the persecution which followed the stoning of Stephen went everywhere preaching 
to none but Jews only. You see? Now as another man comes along, and he doesn't have a limitation. It was to Israel, it was to the Gentiles, it was every creature as far as Paul could get, he was still within the God-given limits. And so it's reached unto us, although he has never been here personally. Well now then, what's he driving at? What's he leading up to? Well he says, I've been made a minister. A minister. This is the word that gives us our English word, deacon. There are some who derive the word from two words that mean to run through the dust. Oh yes, I thought a minister was, uh, you know, yes. It isn't. This was a person who was on the very low grade. Presently, when he uses the word steward in 2 Corinthians, he says, I want you to consider that we are stewards and ministers of the mystery. When he uses the word there, it was the under rower, the one that was chained to a seat in those ships where they had the long sweeps, the lowest galley slave in the whole place. Paul takes that word. Fancy that. So when he said he was a minister, he had no idea what collar he was going to wear. No, no. No, no. Or we leave it to these other folks. I'm not criticising them. But the point is that he was entrusted with something which cost him his life. Cost him his all. I remember when we first started this work here. I made such plans. Made, worked out so many ideas in the vain hope that young men might flock to this place and I would have given me life's blood, I think, to have given them all that I knew in the scriptures. But when one or two did come and discovered that there was no nance and no clerical collar, but there was, like Churchill said, blood and sweat and tears, they went. The one or two who stayed have known a little bit about the blood and sweat and tears, but they're not serving me. They're only serving with me for the same glorious master. I met our brother Mr. Ramsey and he looked just for a moment as though he was vacant. I said, you want a job? Mm. No, he didn't want a job. He was just temporarily having a breather. The one or two friends that have joined in with this work, friends, They've got a full-time job in their spare time. And the only reward they'll get is when they stand in the Lord's presence in that day. And that'll be work at it. Well, now this man's a minister. He says, Who now rejoice in my suffering. Philippians is the epistle of rejoicing. There is in prison. And he's writing to people who knew that he was in prison before. For he was put in prison at Philippi. He's writing to the Philippians. And they said, here he is again, he's in prison in Rome now, and he's the same man. Because they were astounded that after they'd scourged Saul, or Paul, and Silas, with their backs raw with the thongs, and bundled them into the innermost prison, the other prisoners were astounded that instead of being oaths and curses, they were singing hymns. Singing hymns. And when Paul wrote from the prison, he wasn't telling out people outside, oh, I envy you. You're having a good time. The man in the prison was writing out, rejoice, he says, again I say rejoice. So here, he speaks of his sufferings not to get our commiseration. He says, I rejoice in them. This is an honour. Because I'm standing with Christ in a world that rejects him, among even believers that reject him. And he said, I would rather stand with him in rejection than be accepted by those who pillory him. And of course, if we'd all got grace enough and pluck enough, we'd say, and so would I. He says, I'm, I'm now about to fill up that which is lacking of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake. You've got to walk gently here. As we've said earlier, there was no idea that the sufferings of Paul 
made an atonement or an accomplishment of redemption. But this man had a unique ministry. He was taken from being a persecuting, blaspheming Pharisee. And he was turned into the apostle of the Gentiles by the grace of God. And on one occasion he said, lest, listen to this, lest I should be exalted above measure because of the abundance of the revelations that I've had given to me. I've had a thorn in the side, a messenger of Satan sent to buffet me. So Paul himself knew that there was always the possibility that if he was left to himself, he might begin to get rather proud and boastful. You've got to come to me to learn the mystery, he says. Unto me it's been revealed. But of course he was able to add in Ephesians, unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is he? That kept him in his right place. It'd have been a tragedy for a boastful Paul, wouldn't it? They couldn't think of it. So those sufferings were all a part of his commission. And it was for the body's sake, which is the church, whereof I made a minister, twice. Now he says this is all according to a dispensation of God. Most of us know that this is a very key word, dispensation. But I must mention it, because we're having a recording, and I feel that everyone ought to have some acquaintance with this word. I'll spell the word or pronounce it. The word is oikonomia. The first part of the word is the word oikos, a house. The second part of the word is from the verb nemo, to administer, which is allied to the word nomos, a law. So, a dispensation is the administration of a house. Now, it not, doesn't necessarily limit it to a house, but that's the idea. Now, oikonomia has come into our language, but we don't spell it oikonomia. We say economy. That's the same word. And economy doesn't mean saving money. Oh no, it means spending it. Wisely. Wisely. You have social economy, domestic economy. But what are the different words? It doesn't mean cheese pairing. It means administration. Now the first occurrence, or not the first, but nearly the first occurrence of the word dispensation comes in Luke 16, where we have the parable of the unjust steward. Now the word steward is oikonomos. And he was told, he was given account of his stewardship, oikonomia. So the oikonomos had an oikonomia. See? Now the word steward is rather an interesting word, our own English word. It goes right back to Anglo-Saxon times. And it was originally spelt S-T-Y-W-A-R-D. Now today the word sty is limited to the pig. But originally the word sty meant a farm. And the ward was the one who looked after it. So a sty ward was the farm bailiff. And the Apostle Paul says, I've been made a farm bailiff. I've been given a certain section of my master's fields to watch over. The Gentile section. I'm a steward of the mysteries of God. So you see, the word dispensation doesn't mean a period of time. Some people say the ages and dispensations. Well, that's all right. Ages are the times. The dispensations are the different stewardships at different times that have been put into operation by God. Some of them run together. Some of them run alone. There was a day when God concentrated all his attention upon one people. And he gave Moses the stewardship of the law of Sinai. Unto what people has God ever given? He, he asked them such laws. No, no other people. But then, in the Acts of the Apostles, there were two dispensations running together. The Apostle Peter had to recognize that just as surely as he had been made the Apostle of the Gentiles, so surely Paul had been made uh, uh, the Jew, so surely he'd been made the Apostle of the Gentiles, and shook hands on it, and both went their ways. Now, you ask me how many dispensations are running at this time? 
I think I'm going to be wise and say, I don't know. And then I'll make a little sort of guess at one or two. There is the present dispensation, which is the parenthetical dealing of God with you and me, if we belong to this calling of the mystery. There's the great outside witness of John's Gospel to the world. The word world occurs in John's Gospel more than any other book in the New Testament. And its one great object is not to make you a member of the body of Christ or the bride of the Lamb or belong to a kingdom. Its one object is that you may have life. Millions and millions of believers have life. And nobody can tell what God is going to do with them in the day of glory comes. We have to leave it with him. And then you see, there may be other ways in which God is dealing with men today. The great outside heathen world all around us, the Mohammedans and the pagans, and I don't know what. We don't know what God's plan is for them. The only thing is that sometimes we perhaps would do well to look at the last verses of John's Gospel. He said, what do they say? What is that to you? We're so much worrying about everybody else that we forget that we've got a job to do. Peter, Peter, feed my sheep. Uh, what's your business? What is that to you? Get on with the work I've given you. So, if you come to me, friends, at any meeting, with a verse out of Ephesians or Colossians, and I would say to you, I haven't got the remotest idea what it means, I should be sad. There's something wrong with me. But if you bring me a verse out of Obadiah, well, I might say, well, Obadiah means something. And when that's fulfilled, they'll know what it means, but that's not my calling. You see, I don't pretend to know it all. I don't pretend to know the bit that belongs to me. But that's my responsibility and that's yours. So we focus our attention particularly on this calling. So he says, I've been made a minister according to a stewardship that's been trusted to me, a stewardship of God which is given to me for you to complete the word of God. I want to complete my tale of sufferings in my ministry, I want to complete, and now I do complete, the word of God. Moses started with Genesis. It's built up the law, the prophets, the Psalms, the Gospels, the Acts of the Apostles, the seven epistles of Peter and James and John and Jude, the seven epistles of the Acts period, Romans and Galatians, Thessalonians, Corinthians and Hebrews, and then come the seven epistles of the mystery, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Second Timothy, Philemon, Timothy and Titus. Completing the word of God. And without them, incomplete Bible. You ever talk with some of your friends and say, you know, you've got a, you haven't got a complete Bible. This is what do you mean? Well, this bit is unknown territory to so many, isn't it, by the, the way in which we've been brought up. What well, is it? This completion of the word of God is the mystery. The first occurrence of the word mystery in the whole Bible is in the Greek version of the book of Daniel, where it's translated secrets. But that's an interesting fact, because Daniel was the prisoner of the Lord, for the Gentiles, wasn't it? Israel were captive. Israel were in their sort of darkness. Well, that's true today. Daniel was at the court of Nebuchadnezzar, the first great Gentile ruler. And he was, he was telling Nebuchadnezzar truth. He wasn't telling Israel truth. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, not the Israelites. So Daniel was the Paul of the Old Testament. And just as his ministry was dealing with a secret that God then revealed. So Paul comes along, and he has a secret which God then revealed when Israel went out into their blindness. And he says about this mystery, it was hid. It's one of the characteristics of the word mystery, that it's a hidden thing. And it needs a revelation. There are some things you can discover by probing and searching. But if God, if God hides a thing, who can find it? Then yet people turn around and say, oh, we can find all this so-called mystery in the Old Testament. And they bring out their types of Rebecca and Isaac and I don't know what. Never. Never there. 
Paul, who quotes the scriptures over and over and over again in his earlier epistles. You know how he goes, sometimes he strings about four lots together, and again, and again, and again. You take the whole of this ministry after Acts 28, and there's five, or if you're you're going to be liberal, six quotations from the Old Testament. And the bulk of them are in the practical section of Ephesians, not the doctrine. He wasn't quoting scripture when he wrote these epistles. He was writing scripture, independent of others, being given by the same author, to fill up the scriptures, writing the last chapters. Now it says it was hid. If you turn back for a moment to Ephesians, you'll find, I think, the same emphasis. Ephesians 3 is the balancing section. It says in verse 9 of chapter 3, and to make all men see, what is the fellowship? Revised version. What is the dispensation? That They don't sound alike in English, fellowship and dispensation. But fellowship begins with K-O-I, and dispensation begins with O-I-K. And that's all, it, that's all that's happened. The slave who was writing this over and over and over again, he got tired, it was time to leave off. You try to write out one book of the Bible and you'll be surprised how many mistakes you'll make. One book. Hence you doing the lot. So we get these little slips. And to make all men see what is the dispensation of the mystery which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God. Here it says, even the mystery which has been hid from ages and from generations. A double hiding. Hidden in God, away from ages and generations. Well, if, 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 I don't know how God can say the more emphatically that it was something that was not on the surface of Scripture and not even inside the Scripture. He says, but now is made manifest to his saints. And he claims in Ephesians 3 that it's the testimony of the Lord's prisoner. As the prisoner of the Lord, it said, I receive this for you Gentiles, this mystery which has been hidden from ages and generations, now made manifest, to whom God would make known. What is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles? And then he gives the answer, which is Christ. Our version says, in you, the hope of glory. Well, there's an element of truth there, each one of us separately. Christ, here we were, we we see our character in Ephesians. Christless, hopeless, godless, no hope, without God in the world. And now we've got a hope of glory. Well, something's happened then. Some wonderful change has taken place. So we say, Christ in you. And Ephesians 3 says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Oh, it's true. But there may be another truth here. The margin says, Christ among you. And already we have the word among in verse 27. The riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. Well, let's have the same word. Twice in the one verse, the same word. Which is Christ among you. Now you see, this is balancing, I believe, this is balancing the word in all creation. See the first, verse 23, preached in all creation. 27, 28, preached and manifested in you or among you. That is to say, the sheer fact that Paul can write a letter to Gentiles as such without being associated with a synagogue or having any relation to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Well, he said that's a sure evidence that God's done something now which he'd never done before. From the call of Abraham in Genesis 12 until the last chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, there isn't a solitary index or indication that God dealt savingly with any person who wasn't associated with the people of Israel. When our Saviour spoke to the Samaritan woman 
He said, all salvation is of the Jews. When Paul wrote his mighty epistle to the Romans and leveled the Jew and the Gentile in the dust for all the guilty, he nevertheless said, don't forget, Gentiles, I don't want you to be wise in your own conceits. I don't want you to think a little bit of yourselves. You are only a wild olive graft contrary to nature into the olive tree. Israel's the olive tree. Now you see the change. The church of the one body under the terms of the mystery. This is not a wild graft into an olive tree. This is a new calling and a new constitution in which every member is on perfectly equal terms and all associated with Christ as head. A new creation. A newly created new man. So he says, to whom God would make known. What is the riches? All the way these words are piled up in these epistles. Riches of grace. Riches of glory. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. Well, he says, I'm coming back to my old, old story. What is that, Paul? Well, he says, have I been talking to you so long that you don't know that the one word, Christ, is practically all I've got to say all the time? When it pleased God to reveal his Son in me, that I might preach him, that's the gospel, I preach Christ. When I tell you the goal of my life is for me to live is Christ. And when I say you belong to this church, which is the body, in chapter 3, he says that's where Christ is all and in all. So he says, do you want to have a long, elaborate account of the riches, of the glory, of this mystery among the Gentiles? Well, I'll give it to you one word, Christ among you. The sheer fact that although Israel are gone, and all the purpose of God seemed to be broken down, the sheer fact that Christ is sent to you and preached among you by me, the apostle of the Gentiles, that's the riches of the glory of this mystery. You'll see it again in chapter 2, verse 2, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches, here come riches, of a full assurance, of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God. Now the revised text leaves everything else out and says, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God, Christ, not like that. Nothing in between. Just the one word. The acknowledging of all this is Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Well, I'm going to keep on with that then till I touch the tape and my work is done, friend. That every meeting that God enables me to take, I do hope that somewhere or other in it, there will be a pointing away to the Lamb of God to the seated Christ, to him to whom we owe all things, life and breath and hope and salvation and peace and glory. And you all have the feeling that as long as that is the keynote of our ministry, whether we are few or many, there'll be one who will be glad. You know who that is? That's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For it was well pleasing to him that in him should all the fullness dwell. And the more we acknowledge that, the more we are near the very heart of him. So we'll be like little children, shall we? And over and over again we'll say, tell me the old, old story of Jesus and his love. We'll tell it in other terms that we speak to children, but it was the same blessed person and the same glorious emphasis. Well, when we come to verse 28, we are now touching upon another theme. Whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. He's already said they're going to be presented unblameable, but he says, I want to present you too. But what do you mean by that, Paul? 
when he says this is on a different ground altogether. He's warning them. And in chapter 2, he pretty well fills that chapter with the word warning. He starts in verse 8, beware. He repeats it in verse 18, let no man beguile you. He says, I want you to realize in your own experience what Christ is and what you might be. I'm not interfering with the fact that one day you're going to be presented to the Father. I want also as a result of my testimony and my witness to see you growing and laying hold upon these things. So you see, there's no contradiction. And as you know, the word perfect in many of these places doesn't mean getting better and better. It's as if even Christ he was made perfect by the things which he suffered. Now if that means better say he was made better and better, or well, where are we? But you know that word perfect, we've said it so many times, is the word that gives us the modern words telegram, telescope, telephone, television. It all means tele-distance. Speak at a distance, that's telephone. Write at a distance, that's telegram. See at a distance, that's either a telescope or television. See distance. And this word perfect doesn't mean getting better and better, but it means having begun. You go on. You touch the tape at the end. We read Hebrews 5. He said, some of you, you ought to be teaching others, but you need that someone teach you what are the first principles. You're simply living on milk, still and not strong meat. Therefore, let us go on unto perfection, full growth, not draw back and dither about and slide and slip and drift. See? All we need is the same as the Hebrews. God may use different terms, but we're all much of the same kidney at the last. Verse 29, with which we must close. Whereunto I also labour, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. But we shall find these overlap and will have their place in the structure of the passage when we come to consider it next time. Well, I think that's where we must call a halt. And I do trust that as we surveyed this claim of the Apostle to have received a dispensation that it was directed to us Gentiles, that it's a secret never made known before that we may realise we are indeed highly favoured people as he says in Ephesians, highly favoured in the beloved.